Hello, James Kenny here, and this is my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode 18, entitled Robert Emmett, Lord Kilwarden, Thomas Russell, Michael DeWire, and the Irish Revolutions of 1798 and 1803. I hope you like this. Robert Emmett had planned to capture Dublin Castle as the start of the rebellion throughout the provinces. He was the brother of Thomas Addis Emmett, one of the foremost distinguished and illustrious United Irish leaders. In this new conspiracy, Robert Emmett was joined by several of the leaders in the recent insurrection, among them being Thomas Russell, one of the bravest and noblest ever to appear on the pages of history, and Michael DeWire of Wicklow, who held out in Glenmalure, defying and defeating all attempts to capture him. Although the conspiracy embraced thousands of associates in Dublin alone, not one betrayed the secret, even when one of their ammunition dumps accidentally exploded. The authorities failed to divine what was happening or what was about to happen. On the night of the 23rd of July 1803, Emmett marched out from one of the depots at the head of about 100 rebels. When he reached the street, he was disappointed to find that the other troops had not shown up. When the carriage carrying Lord Kilwarden appeared from the castle, the men were incensed to see the judge who had failed to release Napper Tandy after his acquittal, and they set upon him in an angry mood, killing the occupants. The Lord Chief Justice of Ireland, Lord Kilwarden, was dragged from his carriage and stabbed by pikes. Found still alive, he was taken to a watch-house, where he died shortly thereafter. Kilwarden's nephew, the Reverend Richard Wolfe, was also murdered. Robert Emmett was unable to control his men, and ordered an immediate abandonment. He hurried away towards Wicklow, in time to countermand the uprising there, and also in Wexford and Kildare. Arthur Wolfe, 1st Viscount Kilwarden, 1739-1803, was an Irish peer, politician and judge, who held office as Lord Chief Justice of Ireland, He was assassinated during the Irish Rebellion of 1803. Wolfe was born at Four Noughts House near Nace, being the eighth of nine sons born to John Wolfe and his wife Mary. One of his brothers, Peter, was the High Sheriff of Kildare, and his first cousin, Theobald, was the father of the poet Charles Wolfe. Wolfe was educated at Trinity College Dublin and at the Middle Temple in London. He was called to the Irish Bar in 1766. In 1769 he married Anne Ruxton and after building up a successful practice took silk in 1778. He and Anne had four children, John, Arthur, Mariana and Elizabeth. In 1783 Arthur Wolfe was returned as Member of Parliament for Coolrain, which he represented until 1790. 
1787, he was appointed Solicitor General for Ireland and was returned to Parliament for Jamestown in 1790. Appointed Attorney General for Ireland in 1789, he was known for his strict adherence to the forms of law and his opposition to the arbitrary measures taken by the authorities, despite his own position in the Protestant ascendancy. He unsuccessfully prosecuted William Drennan in 1792, and in 1795, Lord Fitzwilliam, the new Lord Lieutenant, intended to remove him from his place as Attorney General to make way for George Ponsonby, in compensation, Wolfe's wife was created Baroness Kilwarden on the 30th of September 1795. However, the recall of Fitzwilliam enabled Wolfe to retain his office. In January 1798, he was simultaneously returned to Parliament for Dublin City and Ardfert County Kerry. However, he left the House of Commons when he was appointed Chief Justice of the King's Bench of Ireland and created Baron Kilwarden on the 3rd of July 1798. After the passage of the Act of Union, which he supported, Kilwarden was created Viscount Kilwarden on the 29th of December 1800. In 1802, he was appointed Chancellor of the University of Dublin. He twice issued writs of habeas corpus on behalf of Wolfe Tone, then held in military custody, but these were ignored by the army and forestalled by Tone's death in prison. Wolfe Tone's godfather, Theobald Wolfe of Blackhall, the father of Charles Wolfe, was Kilwarden's first cousin. And Wolfe Tone may have been Theobald's natural son. In 1802, he presided over the case against Dublin town major Sir, in which the habitual abuses of power used to suppress rebellion were exposed in court. Henry Charles Sir, 1764-1841, was an Irish soldier, police officer, wine merchant and collector, who had been present at the capture of Lord Edward Fitzgerald on the 18th of May, 1798. During the 1803 rebellion, Kilwarden, who had never been forgiven by the United Irishmen for the execution of William Orr and for not releasing Napper Tandy after his acquittal, was clearly in great danger. On the night of the 23rd of July 1803, the approach of Emmett's rebels induced him to leave his residence, Newlands House, in the suburbs of Dublin, with his daughter Elizabeth and his nephew, Reverend Richard Wolfe, thinking that he would be safer among the crowd. He ordered his driver to proceed by way of Thomas Street in the city centre. However, the street was occupied by Robert Emmett's rebels. Unwisely, when challenged, he gave his name and office, and he was rapidly dragged from his carriage and stabbed repeatedly with pikes. His nephew was murdered in a similar fashion, while Elizabeth was allowed to escape to Dublin Castle, where she raised the alarm. When the rebels were suppressed, Kilwarden was found to be still living. He was carried to a watchhouse, where he died shortly thereafter. His last words spoken in reply to a soldier who called for the death of his murderers were, Murder must be punished, but let no man suffer for my death, but on a fair trial and by the laws of his country. He was succeeded by his eldest son, John Wolfe, 2nd Viscount Kilwarden, 
Neither John nor his younger brother Arthur, who died in 1805, had male issue, and on John's death in 1830, the title became extinct. William Moore, 1766-1797, was a member of the United Irishmen, who was executed in 1797, in what was widely believed at the time to be judicial murder and whose memory led to the rallying cry, Remember R, during the 1798 rebellion. He was charged with administering the United Irish Oath to a soldier named Hugh Wheatley, an offence which had recently been deemed a capital charge under the 1796 Insurrection Act. The United Irishmen knew from the evidence of some of their members that R had not administered the oath on the occasion alleged. They also had the evidence of another eyewitness, Jamie Hope. The soldier witness Wheatley perjured himself, and it was proved he was of bad character. The person who did tender the oath was a well-known member of the society, William McKeever, who subsequently escaped to America. It was widely believed at the time that the authorities wished to make an example of R to act as a deterrent to potential United Irish recruits. The only evidence used against R was the unsupported evidence of the soldier Wheatley, and after hearing John Philpot Curran's defence of the prisoner, there could be no possible doubt of his innocence. The sentence was hardly passed on William R when those who had aided in securing the verdict were filled with regret. The witness Wheatley, who subsequently went insane, is believed to have died by his own hand, had made an affidavit before a magistrate, admitting that he had sworn wrongly against R. Two of the jury made depositions stating that they had been induced to join in the verdict of guilty while under the influence of drink while two others swore that they had been terrified into the same course by threats of violence. William Moore was hanged in the town of Carrigfergus on the 14th of October 1797, surrounded by an extra strong military guard. It is said that the population of the town, to express their sympathy with the Patriot being murdered by law, and to mark their repugnance of the conduct of the government towards him, quit the town on the day of his execution. All of Emmet's friends now urged him to escape, but he insisted on remaining, refusing to disclose his reasons. But it was soon discovered that the daughter of John Philpot Kern, the eminent barrister, and Robert Emmet were lovers. He wanted to say farewell to his sweetheart, Sarah Kern, and this delay cost him his life. John Philpot Curran, 1750-1817, was an Irish orator, politician, wit, lawyer and judge, who held the office of Master of the Rolls in Ireland, a liberal Protestant whose politics were similar to Henry Grattan. He employed all his eloquence to oppose the illiberal policy of the government, and also the union with Britain. Kern stood as Member of Parliament for Kilbegan in 1783. He subsequently represented Ratcormac between 1790 and 1798, and served then for Banagher from 1800 until the Act of Union in 1801, which bitterly disappointed him. He even contemplated emigrating 
to the United States. His youngest daughter, Sarah's romance with the rebel Robert Emmett, who was hanged for treason in 1803, scandalised Kern, who had tried to split them up. He was arrested and agreed to pass their correspondence on to Standish O'Grady, 1st Viscount Gullimore, the Attorney General for Ireland. In the circumstances, he could not defend Emmett. He was suspected with involvement in Emmett's rebellion, but was completely exonerated. However, his friend Lord Kilwarden was killed by the rebels, and he lost any faith in the beliefs of the United Irishmen. He disowned Sarah, who died of tuberculosis five years later. Lord Byron said, After the death of Curran, I have heard that man speak more poetry than I have seen written. And in a letter to Thomas Moore on the 1st of October 1821, I feel, as your poor Curran said before his death, a mountain of lead upon my heart, which I believe to be constitutional, and that nothing will remove it but the same remedy. Karl Marx recommended to Frederick Engels that he read the speeches of John Philpot Kern in a letter of the 10th of December 1869. You must get Kern's speeches edited by Thomas Davis. I consider Kern the only great lawyer and people's advocate of the 18th century and the noblest personality, while Grattan was a parliamentary rogue, but because you will find quoted there all the sources for the United Irishman. Kern retired in 1814 and spent his last three years in London. He died in his home in Brompton in 1817. In 1837, his remains were transferred from Paddington Cemetery, London, to Glasnevin Cemetery, Dublin, where they were laid in an eight-foot-high classical-style sarcophagus. In 1845, a white marble memorial to him with a carved bust of Christopher Moore, was placed near the west door of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin. Robert Emmett was arrested on the 25th of August 1803 at a house on the east side of Harold's Cross Road. John Philpot Kern refused to act as his defence counsel. He was tried for treason on the 19th of September. The Crown repaired the weaknesses in its case, by secretly buying the assistance of Emmett's defence attorney, Leonard McNally, for £200 and a pension. But McNally's assistant, Peter Burroughs, could not be bought, and he pleaded the case as best he could. On the 19th of September, Emmett was found guilty of high treason, and he was sentenced to death on the 20th of September, 1803. His speech from the dock has tended to give immortality to his name, even if his actions were foolhardy in the extreme. Robert Emmett, 1778-1803, was born at 109 St. Stephen's Green, Dublin, on the 14th of March, 1778. He was the youngest son of Dr. Robert Emmett, 1729-1802, a court physician, and his wife Elizabeth Mason, the Emmets were financially comfortable members of the Protestant ascendancy, with a house at St. Stephen's Green and a country residence near Milltown. One of his elder brothers was an Irish Republican and nationalist, Thomas Addis Emmett, a close friend of Theobald Wolfe Tone, who was a frequent visitor to the house when Robert was a child. 
Emmett attended Oswell's School in Doppings Court of Golden Lane and later Samuel White's Seminary in Grafton Street. Emmett entered Trinity College Dublin in October 1793 at the age of 15. In December 1797, he joined the College Historical Society, a debating society. While at college, his brother Thomas and some of his friends became involved in political activism. Robert became secretary of a secret United Irish Committee in college and was expelled in April 1798 as a result. That same year, he fled to France to avoid the many British arrests of nationalists that were taking place in Ireland. After the 1798 Rising, Emmett was involved in reorganising the defeated United Irish Society. In April 1799, a warrant was issued for his arrest. He escaped and soon after travelled to the continent in the hope of securing French military aid, but his efforts were unsuccessful. Emmett returned to Ireland in October 1802, and in March the following year he began preparations for another failed uprising. Before sentencing, Emmett delivered a speech. The speech from the dock. It is especially remembered for its closing sentences, and secured his posthumous fame among executed Irish Republicans. It was printed in 1835 in Manchester for the bookseller T.P. Carlyle. Let no man write my epitaph, for as no man who knows my motives dare now vindicate them, let not prejudice or ignorance asperse them. Let them and me rest in obscurity and peace, and my tomb remain uninscribed, and my memory in oblivion, until other times and other men can do justice to my character. When my country takes her place among the nations of the earth, then, and not till then, let my epitaph be written. I am here ready to die. I am not allowed to vindicate my character. No man shall dare to vindicate my character. And when I am prevented from vindicating myself, let no man dare to calumniate me. Let my character and my motives repose in obscurity and peace till other times and other men can do them justice. Then shall my character be vindicated. Then my epitaph be written. Chief Justice Lord Norbury sentenced Emmett to be hanged, drawn and quartered, as was customary for conviction of treason. The following day, 20th of September, Emmett was executed in Thomas Street, Dublin, in front of St. Catherine's Protestant Church. He was hanged and then beheaded once dead. As family members and friends of Robert had also been arrested, including some who had nothing to do with the rebellion, no one came forward to claim his remains out of fear of arrest. His body was then spirited away to a secret burial by the castle authorities and has remained so to this present time. His fellow student and good friend Thomas Moore wrote, O breathe not his name, let it sleep in the shade, where cold and unhonoured his relics are laid. Sad, silent and dark be the tears that we shed as the night dew that falls on the grass o'er his head. But the night dew that falls, though in silent it weeps, shall brighten with virtue the grave where he sleeps. And the tear that we shed, though in secret it rolls, shall long keep his memory green 
in our souls. Sometime afterwards, Thomas Russell was captured and executed at Downpatrick, and for many months thereafter, the hangman was kept busy at his bloody trade in Dublin. In 1804, the Irish government commissioned an investigation into the depreciation of the Irish pound, although less famous than England's subsequent bullion report of 1810. A number of arguments were put forth on the cause of the depreciation of the Irish pound after the 1797 suspension of convertibility. That is, on the 26th of February 1797, wartime speculation forced the British pound off gold, and the Irish pound followed a few days later. For example, David Ricardo, an influential economist at the time, and to this day, argued that the depreciation of paper currency was due almost entirely, if not solely, from the excess of paper. Henry Thornton, another leading economist and banker, of that era agreed that in the long run this was true but stressed that the short run factors might produce the same result a good or bad harvest in particular will have a considerable influence in producing this temporary difference if the harvest fails and imports are necessary the means of payment are to be supplied more gradually hence a temporary pressure arises at the time of any very unfavourable balance. And while some blame might have been apportioned to the Bank of Ireland for over-issuing pounds after the suspension of convertibility into species, blame might also be shared with some Irish country banks, which also issued banknotes. Thomas Palliser Russell, 1767-1803, was a founding member and leading organiser of the United Irishman. Born in Dromahan, County Cork, to an Anglican family with a military tradition, at the age of 15, Russell sailed with his brother's regiment to India. In July 1783, he was commissioned ensign in an infantry regiment and saw action in the Second Anglo-Mysore War. A cannoneer in India, he distinguished himself by carrying his wounded commanding officer from the battlefield. Russell returned to Ireland in 1786, and after briefly considering church ministry, spent the next four years as a half-pay officer in Dublin, pursuing studies of science, philosophy and politics. In July 1790, in the visitors' gallery in the Irish House of Commons, he met Theobald Wolfe Tone. He found Tone equally critical of the proceedings in the chamber below, where the Patriot leader, Henry Grattan, was unable to capitalise on his triumph in securing Ireland's legislative independence from England. Writing his autobiography six years later in Paris, Wolfe Tone was to describe the encounter with Russell as one of the most fortunate in my life. Russell travelled widely throughout Ulster, recruiting and organising for the United Irishmen. In September 1795, an informer reported that Captain Russell of Belfast has been appointed to the command of all the societies in the province of Ulster, while some time later, one of the government's most reliable agents informed the castle 
that the United Irishmen were ready to rise and that Russell now conducts all their plans. His role as a United Irish recruiter was commemorated in the well-known ballad, The Man from God Knows Where. After the failed rising, Russell managed to hide for a number of weeks in Dublin, but was caught in the authorities' dragnet on the 9th of September. He was sent under heavy escort to Downpatrick Jail. There, convicted of high treason on the 12th of October 1803, he was hung and beheaded. His remains were buried in the graveyard of the parish church, Down Cathedral, a grave paid for by his friend Mary Ann McCracken. In remarks to the court before sentencing, Russell expressed surprise to see gentlemen on the jury who had often expressed and advocated political opinions similar to those on which he had acted and for which he had forfeited his life for the sentiments publicly delivered by them had assisted to influence his conduct. He afterwards told an officer that six of the jury had been United Irishmen. Michael Dwyer, however, held out in his territory in the hills of Wicklow, in the fastnesses of Luggilaw, Glenmalure and Glendalough. With his trusty band, he defeated every effort of the regiments sent to capture him. More than a year passed, and the might of the British government were unable to subdue the indomitable outlaws of Glenmalure. It was now decided to construct a series of mountain roads, barracks and outposts in this stronghold district. The scheme was carried out and visitors who now travailed through the scenic beauty of Glencree, Glendalock and Lugilaw can spare thought for Michael Dwyer and his followers, who caused the Government of England to construct the mountain passes in their efforts to capture him. However, while Dwyer and some of his men were resting overnight in a mountaineer's hut in the Glen of Emal, a chance noise outside alerted them, and on peering through a chink in the doorway, he saw an officer and soldiers forming up outside. Then there was a loud banging on the door, and a voice said, In the name of the king, Dwyer, now after five years of successful struggle and defiance, asked what his business was. The officer answered that he knew Michael Dewar was inside. I am the man, answered Dewar, and the officer then replied, This house is surrounded. Give yourself up, as we must take you dead or alive. To which Dewar replied, First let the poor man whose house this is, and his innocent wife and children, pass out through. They are guiltless. Let them go free, and then I shall consider your proposition. The officer agreed, and allowed the family to go free. Then, for the next hour, Dewar and four companions kept their foe at bay, even though one of them lay mortally wounded. The soldiers now set the cabin alight to burn them out. Then the wounded man inside, named Alexander McAllister, said, Prop me up with my gun in my hand, just inside the door, as you rush out. Seeing me, they will fire on me, and you can dash through the smoke before they have reloaded. The plan was carried out to perfection. Dewar escaped and was never captured. The authorities became increasingly exasperated at their failure to capture this brave warrior. They offered honourable conditions for surrender, which he accepted. Dewar finally capitulated on terms that would allow him safe passage to America, but the government reneged on the agreement. 
holding him in Kilmainham Jail until August 1805, when they transported him to New South Wales, Australia, as a non-sentenced exile. Dwyer arrived in Sydney on the 14th of February, 1806, on the Telly and was given free settler status. He was accompanied by his wife Mary and their eldest children, and also by his companions Hugh Vestiburn and Martin Burke, along with Arthur Devlin and John Myrna. He was given a grant of 40.5 hectares, 100 acres of land, on Cabramatta Creek in Sydney. The surrender of Michael Dewar was the last event of the insurrection of 1798 and 1803. Michael Dwyer, 1772-1825, was a United Irishman leader in the 1798 rebellion. He later fought a guerrilla campaign against the British Army in the Wicklow Mountains from 1798-1803 and in the Glen of Imal, County Wicklow. Michael and his family were Catholics and he was the eldest of seven children of farmer John Dwyer and his wife Mary, who had a farm in the widespread fields of Wicklow and who supplied the men of the rebellion with food. In 1784, the family moved to a farm at Eadstown, County Kildare. Although he had originally hoped to be sent to the United States of America, Michael Dewar was later quoted as saying that all Irish will be free in this new country, Australia. This statement had been used against him, and he was arrested in February 1807 and imprisoned. On the 11th of May 1807, Dewar was charged with conspiring to mount an Irish insurrection against British rule. An Irish convict stated in court that Michael Dewar had plans to march on the seat of government in Australia at Parramatta. Dewar did not deny that he had said that all Irish will be free, but he did deny the charges of organising an Irish insurrection in Sydney. Dewar had the powerful support of Australia's first Jewish policeman, John Harris who expressed the opinion in court that he did not believe that Dewar was organising a rebellion against the government in Sydney. On the 18th of May 1807, Dewar was found not guilty on the charges of organising an insurrection in Sydney. Governor of New South Wales, William Bly, disregarded the first trial acquittal of Michael Dewar. William Bly, 1754-1817, was an officer of the Royal Navy and a colonial administrator. The mutiny on the bounty occurred during his command of the HMS Bounty in 1789. After being set free in Bounty's launch by the mutineers, Bly and his loyal men all reached Timor alive after a journey of 3,618 nautical miles. Seventeen years after the Bounty's mutiny, on the 13th of August 1806, he was appointed Governor of New South Wales in Australia, with orders to clean up the corrupt rum trade of the New South Wales Corps. His actions directed against the trade resulted in the so-called Rum Rebellion, during which Bly was placed under arrest on the 26th of January 1808 by the New South Wales Corps, and removed from his command an act which the British Foreign Office later declared to be illegal. He died in London on the 17th of December, 1817. Bly regarded the Irish and many other nationalities with contempt and organised another trial for Michael Dewar in which he was stripped of his free settler status and transported to Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania and Norfolk Island. 
After Governor Bly was overthrown in the Rum Rebellion in 1808, the new governor of New South Wales, George Johnson, who was present at Dewar's acquittal in the first trial, ordered that Michael Dewar's freedom be reinstated. Michael Dewar was later to become Chief of Police, 1813 to 1820, at Liverpool, New South Wales, but was dismissed in October for drunken conduct and mislaying important documents. In December 1822, he was sued for aggrandizing his by now 620-acre farm, bankrupted. He was forced to sell off most of his assets, which included a tavern called the Harrow Inn, although this did not save him from several weeks' incarceration in the Sydney Debtors' Prison in May 1825. Here, he evidently contracted dysentery, to which he succumbed in August 1825. Originally interred at Liverpool, his remains were reburied in the Devonshire Street Cemetery, Sydney, in 1878 by his grandson, John Dwyer, Dean of St Mary's Cathedral. In May 1898, the coincidence of the planned closure of the cemetery and the centenary celebrations for the 1798 rebellion suggested the second reinterment of Dwyer and his wife in Waverley Cemetery, where a substantial memorial was erected in 1900. The massive crowds attending Dwyer's burial and the subsequent unveiling of the monument testified to the unique esteem in which Irish Australians held the former Wicklow hero. Bridges near your oil refinery. 
of grass in my hair Yeah, me and old Walt Whitman Were the men from God knows where I've rode the rods on steam trains With a banjo on my knee While the voice of Stephen Foster Whispered songs to me the Storefront church and the chain gang choir Black sorrow filled the air Then Stephen died on a dust house floor Like the man from God knows where I've heard the sound of the Indian drums And I've heard the bugle Sailed towards America to steal their Indian ground. They passed Bill Cody's circus ships, European bound. So lock up all your daughters, your whiskey, and your I see most of you don't care Lift your glass, reveal your past 